<clears throat> All right, let's return to First uh, Thessalonians chapter two this morning. <clears throat> One of the great joys of ministry is seeing people come to Christ and genuinely follow him through their life. I remember one particular couple in our first ministry that we were able to reach with the gospel. Uh, They were separated, close to a divorce situation. The husband began coming to our services, and he got saved. His wife began to come, and she also got saved. And uh, around 40 years later, they're still serving the Lord. So that's always a joy to those who are in ministry. And Paul expresses his thanks here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 uh, toward the church that he started in Thessalonica. And as we've seen, they received the gospel uh, readily from the men that God sent to their city. Even though they are facing persecution, they're carrying on in the Lord. Uh, they're expressing their faith, their love, and their hope in an obvious way that other people notice. They're spreading the gospel far and wide, so much so that Paul doesn't really have to boast about them and their progress in Christ. Everywhere he goes, it seems they already know about this particular church. But the opposition to Paul is fierce, even though he had to leave the city. And he reminds the church there of how his team brought the gospel and how they acted when they brought it. And they were not deceptive. They were not improperly motivated. They did not make demands for support, even though they could have. They were gentle among them. They were self-sacrificing. They were devout and righteous in their uh, deportment. So in the remainder of chapter 2, The apostle goes on to reaffirm his thanksgiving and appreciation for this church. Paul had reminded them of how the gospel was delivered originally, and now he's thankful for how it was received by the church people. And uh, its genuine reception was really proved by the persecution that they received from it. And then Paul goes on to reaffirm his deep affection for these new converts, citing his great desire to see them again. And uh, he views them as a crown of rejoicing. So the two main points that we want to cover today focus on this church's ready reception of the gospel and then the resulting joy it produced in the hearts of the gospel team. And we come before the Lord's table today. May we readily receive God's word and prove to be a source of joy to those in our community of believers. Heavenly Father, again, we're thankful today for your word. We're thankful, Lord, that also, although uh, to us it is still ancient, it's right up to date in its teaching and preaching. Help us, Lord, again, to receive it, not as the words of men, but as your words, as your instruction to us today. Help us, Lord, to 
be uh, joyful in the presence of others and live in such a way that will bring them joy as well as ourselves. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the first thing we want to look at here is thankfulness for a positive response to God's word in verses 13 through 16. And we see in the very first verse here, believers readily receive God's word. Now, Paul is citing here really another reason why he's thankful for this particular church. It has to do with how they received his word. For this reason, doesn't really connect with what he's already said. It connects to what he's about to say about these believers. It is a reason for him to thank the Lord without ceasing. So every time he comes to prayer and he mentions this church in prayer, he's going to be thinking about this. Maybe at times, as he's going about his daily duties, he'll remember that church and he'll just be thankful for this characteristic. So let's look again at what it is he's thankful about concerning this church. Well, it says, because when you received the word of God, you, uh, which you heard from us, you welcomed it. All right, so the reception of the word is something he's thankful for here. The verb to receive, the first verb there, alludes to the objective nature of God's word. In other words, you listen to it when it's spoken to you. Now, let's remember that the presentation of God's word back in the days of uh, the apostles was oral in nature. They didn't have a New Testament sitting in front of them like we have today. They had the Old Testament. They probably did not have their own copy of it, so they're they're, uh, uh, speaking to the people through their understanding of the Old Testament, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, And uh, Paul, I'm sure, used many Old Testament scriptures and explanations, but he didn't have a Bible sitting in front of him like we do today. So it was all important uh, to open your ears and listen to the word as it was preached. But that's not all. He says here, the believers welcomed that word. So this is the subjective nature. This is how you take it in. As you receive the word of God, you welcome it. You respond to it. You accept it. You believe it as true, and you do something about it. You respond to it. Now, you can receive God's word uh, whenever you hear it, whenever you read it, objectively. There it is in front of you. But you can also uh, not welcome it subjectively within yourself. So this morning you can be out there listening to the pastor preaching the word, but your thoughts can be far away. Your mind can be someplace else. Uh, You can hear the word, but ignore applying it to your life. You can hear the gospel initially uh, and not accept it or just outright reject it. 
So Paul is thankful that when he came to that city and he began preaching the word of God, they received it objectively. They heard it preached, but they heartily welcomed it into their lives. Now let's talk about that a little bit more. As it says here, they welcomed the word of God. It goes on to say here, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. So that's really an important concept here. Uh, They recognized and accepted that the word that they heard from a man was not really his word, it was God's word. It wasn't the human words of Paul that impressed them. It was the uh, divine uh, thought processes behind it that helped them understand this is more than a human being talking here. God is using this person to speak to us. So they realized that these words were not of human origin. They must be in some way divine. So this is the truth they readily responded to. Now, men's words certainly can inspire us in many ways, but they cannot change our life from the inside out. Only God's word is capable of doing that. So that's why Paul says God's word works effectively in those who believe. The last part of verse 13 which also effectively works in you who believe. Because it's God's word, not man's word. That's what makes it effective. That's what makes it produce salvation. That's what creates the change in a person's life. One commentator put it this way. The word of human beings, however wise in substance or eloquent in expression, cannot produce spiritual life. This is the prerogative of the word of God, which works effectually in believers. So all of us who are saved know how the word of God worked effectively in bringing us to Christ and how it continues to work in our lives to change us. Another commentator wrote, such a transforming experience convinces every believer that what he has accepted is truly the word of God. No humanly contrived message can produce such results. So when the pastor gets up and he preaches from God's word, how do you receive it? If he faithfully expounds the word of God, he explains its meaning to you, he tries to draw applications, it's not his words, but God's that are being conveyed. So that means, uh, that doesn't mean that he is God or that he is in some way divine, but what he's explaining to you, uh, using words, Uh, he's explaining what God has already said. So God's word should be no less readily received now than way back when uh, when, uh, Paul wrote this through the Holy Spirit to the church at Thessalonica. 
So when that is happening, a pastor has good reason to thank God for his congregation. They're receiving the word of God through his servant, and they're responsive to it. Now, uh, we go to verse 14. We see here that one proof of readily receiving God's word is persecution. And again, we see this theme running through the entire scripture. When God's word changes a person's life, when a person lives out the gospel in an obvious way, sooner or later, that's going to bother somebody. So we see here that the result of receiving that word, welcoming it, positively responding to it, uh, made life hard for the believers. And Paul again uses this concept of imitation. He says in verse 14, for you brethren became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. So as a result of receiving the gospel, this church began to follow the pattern of other churches of like precious faith. Now remember when the gospel began to be preached, it first started in Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria and then out in the other most parts of the world where Macedonia was and Thessalonica. All right? So those churches were the first ones, the initial ones. They've been around for a couple of decades and they have faced persecution from their countrymen, the Judeans who did not believe. And now this church, although it's miles and miles away, has imitated those churches because they're also receiving persecution from their own countrymen. Okay, so uh, they didn't purposely, I'm sure, want to imitate that church so that they could be afflicted and persecuted, but this is the natural outcome of being saved. As they grew in Christ, they began to experience the same kind of sufferings. Uh, it, it's what comes natural from the gospel. And now, uh, the Thessalonians suffered at the hands of their own countrymen, uh, which would have been pagan, idol worshipers. That's what they were Uh, saved out of, as you remember from our previous uh, sermons. So that means that they would have come out of a family that worshiped idols. They would have had friends that were worshiping the false gods of the Greeks and Romans. They would have had business associates and employers. So all of this group of people now, uh, at least many of them, would have turned against them. And there would not have been a good relationship. And maybe they would have been shunned. Maybe they would have lost their jobs. So this came from believing the gospel. Of course, we don't see it quite as much in our country today as some places, but it's still going on to a certain extent. Then Paul goes on into some detail about the unbelieving Jews. In verse 15, and verse 16. <clears throat> now again, 
Wherever Paul's gone, he goes to the synagogue first and he presents the gospel to the Jews. Some of them believe, but many of them do not. And they're really um, pursuing Paul to get him to shut up about this gospel he's preaching. And uh, they hound him wherever they go. That's why he had to leave uh, Thessalonica. Uh, They pursued him to Berea. He finally ends up in uh, uh, Corinth and Athens. And the Jews uh, just hate uh, this new uh, cult or sect they think that it is. And that was what was going on back in Judea, their own countrymen. So now um, Paul goes into some detail he's never mentioned before, verse 15, about the Judeans who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets. Now this is the only time Paul specifically mentions the Jews killing Jesus. So it's a very harsh criticism. Now we know from other uh, writings, uh, the book of Romans, for instance, that Paul's heart did go out to his nation. He tried to reach them first wherever he went to preach. Uh, He wanted them all to be saved. But he also knew that many of them hindered the spread of the gospel, and that placed them under God's wrath, God's uh, doom. And their crime is heightened by the word order of the sentence. We don't see it in our English Bible, but in the Greek, it reads the Lord. Uh, Between the words Lord and Jesus, you have the verb killed. (coughs) Excuse me. So the, the idea is that uh, they, uh, they killed the Lord, who is Jesus. So the Lord they killed, who is Jesus, and that emphasizes the fact that this man was more than a man. He's actually the Lord, the same term used of the Old Testament God. So they killed the Lord Jesus, who's God in the flesh. Uh, the action was in conjunction with a history of the Jews rebelling against the Lord. They killed some of the prophets in the Old Testament. So these persecutors did not readily receive the word of God. They consistently rejected the word of God and so harshly that they killed some of God's prophets that came with his word, and they killed Jesus who came with his word, and they would have liked to kill a lot of Christians who were listening to the word. They tried to kill Paul. They killed, uh, tried to kill the apostles. So this is a serious rejection of the word of God, and obviously they can't please God doing that. And furthermore, he says, they're contrary to everybody, contrary to all men. Um, And of course, this is what is behind their their hindrance to the spreading of God's word to the Gentiles. Um, They were interested in making the Gentiles Jews. That's what proselytizing was all about. But as we saw uh, in Acts, many of those proselyting Gentiles turned to Christ. So this just made the Jews matter, and they're losing their so-called convents, uh, converts to Christianity. And to everybody else who wouldn't 
come and be a Jew with them, they were vehement. And they were so much so that even the Roman historians picked up on it. For instance, Tacitus wrote of the Jews toward all others, in other words, non-Jews, they cherish hatred of a kind normally reserved for enemies. So what's the result then of this hatred of this gospel, of the gospel, this refusal to receive God's word? Well, he goes on to tell us, um, <clears throat> forbidding to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so they're hindering God's word. And then it goes on to say, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. So what this is saying, that through the centuries, really, the nation, each generation of Jews who reject God's word, who won't receive it, they're, they're filling the cup of God's wrath against them. And one day it will have to be poured out personally and then naturally. Um, one commentator stated each fresh act of hostility to the gospel was an initial drop in their cup of guilt, which had been steadily filling during the ages. And so now all they have to look forward to is the wrath. Now the wrath has to be God's wrath. Uh, man's wrath is not as efficient as God's wrath, although sometimes you, God uses men to uh, carry out his wrath. But this wrath is, has come upon them. In other words, it's so sure that it's like it has already happened. And we go back in history and we can see uh, how this has played itself out. Not that we don't have compassion, but uh, uh, the Jews still today are not trusting God in great measure. Individuals come to the Lord Jesus, but the nations rejected him. The nation is really largely secular. They've got some Jews that are very uh, uh, tight to the Old Testament law, but they're trusting that. They're not trusting Christ. And so we see this hostility coming out toward the Jews. I mean, the last week, did you realize so many Americans were pro-Palestinian and hated Jews? It's a result of of their refusal to take their Messiah. And so we can see that kind of thing, but this is the wrath that's coming and likely alludes to the tribulation before the Lord converts the nation and, and turns them saved into the millennium. So again, uh, individually and nationally, they have nothing to look forward to but the wrath of God because they won't heartily receive his word like the Thessalonian church did. So persecution is evidence of truly welcoming God's word into your life. You join the ranks of those who have suffered before you for the sake of Christ, even the Lord Jesus himself. And we've seen, uh, we've seen this developing now in our own country. It's probably going to get worse 
But you've heard, you know, about the cake decorator and the website designer and many others who've made really national headlines because they would not cave to anti-Christian agenda concerning their business. Uh, And this is probably going to to keep moving forward. Now, uh, the second thing we want to look at here today is Paul's reaffirmation of affection and joy to those who did receive God's word here. So the result of it in his life has been joy in seeing them grow and not fall away because of uh, persecution. So Paul's affection is first of all revealed in his desire to revisit this church. Now remember, he was only there no more than a couple months, maybe not even that long, he had to leave because the Jews were set to, to kill him, really. And he's wanted to go back, but he's not been able to. And that's what he's kind of demonstrating here. And there's a lot of uh, strong emotional terms that he uses here to express his affection toward this church. So uh, back in verse 14, then again in verse 17, he uses that term, Uh, brethren, brothers and sisters, the family idea there of uh, bringing uh, believers together in a family-type situation. Then he says in verse 17, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart. Now that verb, to take away, is a very sharp one. It, It literally means to be torn away. It's elsewhere used as an expression of bereavement. So it it would be similar to a child suddenly orphaned, bereaved of their parent, and the mental anguish that would be experienced by that. So a very strong term indicating how much Paul misses them. He also assures them that um, although they had been taken away for a period of time, uh, they weren't separated in heart, in spirit. And it wasn't an out-of-mind, out-of-sight, out, uh, out-of-mind situation that he may have been accused of by uh, his uh, opposers. He again conveys here a strong desire to see them again. We endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. So again, they made every effort. It wasn't just a one-time deal. Well, it didn't work out, so let's just forget about them. They kept on planning to go see these people, but they weren't able to. And the, the term great desire, that's really the strongest word Paul could use to express his feelings. And usually uh, that alludes to a lust or a strong desire in a negative or evil way but here he uses it to display his passion to get to see them again. Now, um, maybe we could illustrate that by a young couple who are engaged, but they're separated, and they have a strong desire to come together again and and, uh, uh, have that time with each other, and they'll do everything they can to make that happen, but it doesn't always work out the way they plan. So Paul goes on to say that he wanted to come on more than one occasion, verse 18. 
Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again. So this has been our desire. We've tried. We've done our best. uh, But something keeps coming up. And what does Paul say that is? Well, Satan has been hindering us. Okay, so really the only reason Paul cites here that he not been able to fulfill a desire is because the devil is somehow getting in the way. Now, we're not given any indication of what this was that um, uh, hindered Paul, but we do know that Paul's aware that the adversary is, is trying to do this type of thing. Some have suggested that perhaps this related to Paul's thorn in the flesh that he mentions in 2 Corinthians 12. There he said, A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Now, we don't know if some type of recurrent illness was the the problem. It may have been. And sometimes we may wonder how to tell the difference between Satan's hindrance and the Spirit's guidance. Because as they were trying to move in a certain area on the second missionary journey to the north, the Holy Spirit wouldn't let them go. And then he got the Macedonian call and went over uh, to Philippi and Thessalonica, things of that nature. And uh, uh, that was the Spirit. Well, now we see the opposite end, the, the, that Satan is doing the hindering. And we have to remember that the Lord uses many agencies to guide his people, and that also Satan is on a leash like a dog, and the Lord is the master. So he lets Satan do certain things and go so far, but not uh, any farther than God allows. So Satan can hinder, uh, he can tempt, he can try to set back the gospel, but God is always going to pull that chain short so he's not completely successful. Now, I believe that in my attempts to try to go to India, something's hindered, and Satan's behind those hindrances. Uh, Do you think Satan was behind COVID-19? If somebody in a Wuhan lab was trying to put this thing together and release it in the world, Satan was behind that. And that set back travel to different parts of the world. It set back a lot of people trying to go to places to minister. It hindered them and really hindered them for almost two years before you could just go without having to worry about shots and all that kind of thing. And then we find in India, especially up in Manipur, they've got all these riots going on where Christians are focused on and and persecuted and makes it unsafe for travel. So finally, we get the opportunity we can go there. But don't you think Satan's behind all those kind of hindrances? So Paul desired to return to these new uh, converts, to see them, to teach them further. But somehow Satan interfered with those plans and the Lord allowed it for whatever his purposes were.
Now, as we close out in verses 19 and 20, we see the expression of joy over those who heartily receive God's word. Paul says, uh, for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. So he's expressing a very high esteem for this church. And he views them as his hope and joy and crown of rejoicing. Uh, one man wrote, A man's greatest glory lies in those he has set or helped on the path to Christ. So again, when you're involved in some way of helping somebody come to know the Lord, whether you're the one that actually led them to that point or not, and you see them growing, that is something that causes you to be thankful and, and rejoice in. So what does Paul mean when he says there is hope? <clears throat> well, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> uh, I'm, I'm running out, so we're going to wrap this up. Uh, possibly that whatever, wherever he went to preach the word, he had the hope that people would heartily receive it. And, and this was a fruition of that hope. They fulfilled that hope. Uh, joy and crown of rejoicing allude to the sense that one has in seeing someone come to Christ, follow his teaching, grow, develop in their character, and you're glad to see that that profession was genuine, it was real, you can see it developing on a regular basis. But then he adds something more to this, because you'll find that in this book, he ends each chapter with some kind of a reference to Christ's return. And he says, uh, as he asked that question about uh, uh, hope and joy and rejoicing, is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? So we have the mention of Christ's presence and his coming here at the end of the chapter. And I just want to um, uh, make a note here about the word presence. Okay, this is the first mention in the New Testament scriptures of that particular word. Now, this was written around 50-51 B.C., two decades after Christ's crucifixion, one of the first, if not the first, epistle that Paul wrote, and he mentions the presence of the Lord at his coming. And this word alludes to a personal presence. He's present with us now, the person of the Holy Spirit, but he's not physically present with us. One day he's going to return, and at that point he will be present physically with us. So this term applies to uh, the time of the arrival, like when somebody knocks at the door, but also the whole period of whatever that visit may entail. An hour, uh, a day, a week, or forever in Christ's uh, sense here. Uh, and it was also used of the coming, the arrival of a great person, such as a king for a royal visit. And uh, its use here obviously is very appropriate to the coming of Jesus, who is the king of kings and lord of lords. 
So Paul uses here for the first time in Christian literature that term which was to be the characteristic designation of the Lord's triumphant return. So when he comes and his kingdom is fully disclosed, Paul will still have this sense of great joy uh, of how the word was received by this particular church. And he also may have had in mind the judgment seat of Christ where all his people will uh, stand before him, their lives will be assessed, and they'll receive crowns of service. And at that time, Paul will experience again this concept of a crown or a high point of joy through these believers he was able to help bring to Christ. And they are his glory and his joy now but they certainly will be for all of eternity. So as we come and and draw all these things together, what kind of applications can we make? Well, first of all, most obviously, do you readily receive the word of the Lord as it's presented to you? Do you view teaching and preaching and reading of his word as God's message to you? Do you respond readily to those messages, quickly? Or do you just kind of have maybe a negative or indifferent attitude to what you hear or see or read? Secondly, do you realize that when you experience affliction or suffering or persecution related to your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you're joining with the Lord Jesus, the long history of Old Testament saints, the apostles, and the true church of God who also have suffered historically. So really, it's, it's actually a reason to rejoice rather than be upset or depressed. And finally, do you earnestly desire to gather with the saints so you can worship with them, you can fellowship with them on a weekly basis, and that is a source of your own joy uh, as you see the word take effect not only in your life, your family, but the whole Christian community where God has placed you. So let's be thankful and joyful in these different ways as Paul is thankful for that ancient church of Thessalonica. Our Heavenly Father, again, we are grateful. We're thankful today for your word. Help us, Lord, to receive it for what it is, not the word of man, but the word of God. And Lord, help it to create a joy in our hearts as we ourselves are changed, but as we uh, look at others who are also changing into the image of Christ. Bless us now as we partake of your table, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.